Hey, Matilda, are you there? I am indeed. Are you ready to record? Yeah. Uh, yeah, one second. Let me just plug in my microphone. Okay, cool, cool, cool. That should be good to go now. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Old Boys Club, a podcast where two young women explain the ins and outs of Australian politics, this time from separate rooms. (laughs) And there's no such thing as a stupid question. My name is Justine Landis-Hanley, I am a journalist and I used to briefly work in politics. My name is Matilda Bosley, I'm also a journalist and I hope to briefly work as an Udi ambassador, please. (laughs) I thought I'd just throw out my, my dream job, you know, now that I've run out of old occupations. It's becoming more and more blatant how badly you just want to become like you just want this podcast to be sponsored by Woody. Yeah, that's not a secret. No. I, I like I'm I am such a fervent ambassador of Udi's in my own personal life. Um, <laughs> You'd love to translate that into a professional occupation. Yeah. We're recording on Google Hangouts right now and you are wearing an avocado Udi. Yeah. I've got so much in my pockets. I've got a little packet of grain waves in this big pocket at the front. I'm ready to go. Great, because coming up on the show today, eight teenagers and a nun won a court case proving the government has a duty of care to protect young people from the impacts of climate change. What does this mean and will it actually change the government's behaviour? It doesn't not sound like a plotline from an Eden Blyton book. <laughs> New South Wales Labor dumped their leader Jody McKay this week. Was it justified or is it another case of political sexism? Oh. Uh-oh, that sounds like it will have a defined and clear answer. <laughs> and for our big topic, we are deep diving into who's to blame for the latest COVID outbreak and lockdown in Victoria. That's right, it's states versus the federals, two governments too furious. And this isn't just like an academic discussion. We will find who's to blame and we will come after them because <laughs> we're currently in lockdown and I'm really <laughs> wanting to go for a walk with more than one person for more than two hours for more than 5K from my home. This is personal and I will be coming after. No, I very much support the lockdown. I think it's a good idea. Okay, bye. But we need someone to put our anger upon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? What is a pandemic if there's not someone to blame? Exactly. But before we get into all of that, Justine, how was your week? Inside. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, a majority of this week has been not in lockdown, but the days when you are in lockdown, just they really just take up more time, I feel like. Time moves slower. Uh, But I think that something that I realised today The pandemic has really ruined my ability to be in crowds. I don't know if anyone else has experienced this, but I was in a shopping center. It was pretty busy and there was this person, poor person, who kept having to go on the loudspeaker overhead and just be like, and remember everyone, leave as soon as you can. Don't like hang around certain areas. Take your items and go. It was, it was chaotic. It was very stressful. I just like sat in the car afterwards. I was like, (laughs) so I, yeah, I, I don't know if any, if anyone else, I don't know if you've experienced this, but just like, I don't, I think I'm ruined for the rest of my life when it comes to being in like crowded public spaces. Every time you talk about the pandemic, it's so wild to me because I forget that you just moved to Victoria, like at the start of this year. Yeah. Because like you, you say these things and I was like, yeah, we, we all look. We learned this last September. Yes. What are you talking about? But I'm like, no, this is the first time you're going through this. This is wild. Anyway, this is this is sad. We're already going to spend most of this episode talking about like the lockdown. So Matilda, tell me about your week. What's something that's happened? Oh my gosh. Um, you know what? I've gotten really into glee again. <laughs> what? I don't I know it's so problematic. It's so Bad. It's incredibly but, problematic when you watch it back through a 2021 lens. Oh my good lord! I so I got really into like there's the Showmance podcast where it's like Tina and Artie. They like talk about what it was like filming, and then there's this other podcast called Oh, it's called Recovering Gleek. Yeah, uh, and it's just like two random <laughs> sort of 20 something year olds from like Utah, and they're just like rewatching all of Glee and just like analyzing like how none of it makes sense. <laughs> and so now Anthony and I have been rewatching Glee, and I don't know why. Glee is like suddenly back in the zeitgeist, but it somehow is in like a very big way. I think honestly, because a lot of people um, are thinking about how uh, the Glee cast would have covered Olivia Rodrigo's sour, like hate to bring it back to that, but it's the only thing that exists in the world. <laughs> anyway, so that's where we're at. We're at like halfway through season one. Jesse St. James has just appeared. We're very excited. Yeah. 
No, I remember those days. I was I was hugely into Glee back in like 2009 when I was 14. Um and I think I think it's okay to watch it as long as you can like recognize all the totally fucked up parts about it. Like I can't believe that I watched that whole show the first time and I was like, yeah, Mr. Shu seems fine. He doesn't seem like a problematic character that's overly sexualizing children. Yeah, that seems like totally fine. And there's nothing wrong with having a able-bodied actor playing a kid in a wheelchair and them all singing that song. What was it? They sing like... um, Oh, no, they sing Imagine with a deaf choir and then they just interrupt them to start singing themselves. Yeah. Like, that's so rude. The deaf choir was performing. This is so niche. This is so niche. If you watch Glee, you'd understand. (laughs) Before we move on, can I just say, Mr. Shu, the teacher in Glee, sings Buster Move to the Glee class and then sings the line, a pretty young girl, I want to sex her, to... Sixteen-year-old pregnant student Quinn Fabray. How? Why did we let that on TV? <laughs> if you have any thoughts about Glee, feel free to send us a DM on our Instagram. Oh my god, please at Old Boys Club Pod, uh, and and we can discuss. Oh yeah, and also Recovering Glee Podcast. Little uh, gr- great lockdown listening. We're just going to assume the whole of Australia is in lockdown because otherwise we'll get too sad. Speaking of Instagram, Matilda and I have come up with a cheeky new segment that we need your help to pull off. Uh, yes, a lot of people have questions about politics, uh, so rather. Other than sending them in a message, send us a voice message over Instagram messages and then we can play it in the podcast and each week we'll take one question that seems probably like an easy one to answer and then we will <laughs> play it in the podcast and then we'll answer it for you in a new segment called we'll play your question and then answer it for you. <laughs> yes. So if you would like to do this, jump on Instagram. I said it before at old boys club pod, uh, give us a follow, send us a message on Instagram messages. You can like voice record yourself. So send us a voice message with your question. Um, and just know that if you do send it to us and we pick it, we will be playing it on the podcast and answering it. So just, just to be really clear, before you send it, you your voice will appear on this show. Oh, and as a reminder, if you take a screenshot of yourself listening to this podcast and pop it up on your Instagram story, uh, it does wonders for helping get the word of the show out there. And we will also shout out your name at the end of the podcast. Yeah. Enough with the promos. <gasps> so, Justine, you know my favourite news stories are always extremely whimsical and they sound like they've come out of like a beautiful teen Disney movie. Yes. Where like the kids go up against the big baddies and they win and they're helped out by a little nun. That's exactly what happened this week. Talk to me about it. That is exactly what happened this week. Yes. Does it not sound like a Disney Channel original movie? It does sound like a Disney Channel original movie and I'm really hoping that Disney makes the original movie version of this or it becomes like a lifetime movie. I don't know. So in order to explain what happened last week, we need to rewind back to September 2020. So last year, a group of eight teenagers aged 13 to 17, many of whom met during those school climate strikes, came together and brought a case against the federal government. Now, the reason why they took this case is because they wanted to launch a class action on behalf of young people everywhere, arguing that the federal government has a duty of care to protect young people against the impacts of climate change. And a class action for people who maybe aren't familiar with the term, it's when you have one big lawsuit to cover, like, you know, maybe it's dozens, maybe it's hundreds of people all with the same claim. Or or in this case, every young person. Yeah. So, you know, it, you often hear about it like, oh, okay, there's a class action because, like, this electric company accidentally caused a bushfire and it destroyed 20 people's homes. So all those 20 people join together and have a class action against the electricity firm together. Like, that's that's the classic thing and it's this except it's all of children and um, the whole of climate change. <laughs> exactly. Now, the reason why these kids brought the class action against the government last year specifically is because they wanted to stop the federal government from approving the expansion of this big coal mine in New South Wales called the Vickery Coal Mine. And they wanted to do this by firstly proving that the government, specifically the Federal Environment Minister Susan Lay owes young people a duty of care not to make climate change worse. And secondly, once that was proven, show that expanding this coal mine would make climate change worse and therefore be a breach of that duty of care. Yeah, basically, uh, the kids are like, if climate change keeps happening, we are fucked. You are our government. It's your job to make us not fucked. 
Yes. <laughs> exactly. But Justine, did the kids win? Well, kind of. They they won they won a very big fundamental potentially uh future changing decision, which is that the federal court found that yes, the federal government, specifically the environment minister, does owe young people a duty of care not to make climate change worse and significantly impact their well-being in the future. In his judgment, Justice Bromberg, who was overseeing the federal court case, he said that it was startling that one million of today's young people are going to have to struggle and receive health care for acute heat stress at some point in their lives because of the impacts of climate change. And to be clear, sort of like the real impact of winning, especially this bit of judgment, is the idea that this is something that could potentially be used as a basis for future court cases. So they're like, okay, back in 2021, it was decided that the environment minister owes children this duty of care on those legal grounds we're going to debate you taking this action like it's it sets a precedent for things that could be used in the future yes and that was something that a expert in climate litigation told abc news so i'm going to read that quote out because i thought it was really interesting please yes so he said that the door is now open to claim damages for the impacts of climate change what does that mean so now that the court has established that the government has a duty of care to young people to protect them against the impacts of climate change, it's now theoretically possible for someone to sue the government for failing to uphold that duty of care. So they could say, the government, you didn't uphold that duty of care. You built this huge mine. It had these impacts on our health because of climate change or our well-being or our futures. You need to pay us money like or some form of you know retribution. That, I mean, that sounds like big. <laughs> That is big. But what about the specific thing they were bringing against? Like they were talking about this specific mine. What was the ruling in that instance? So they didn't get everything that they wanted in this case, but hope is not lost. So even though the judge acknowledged that approving this mine would have a small but foreseeable impact on climate change, and yes, it could compound to increase the catastrophic harm experienced by climate change, he didn't stop the government's approval for this mine, but he did invite both parties, so both legal teams, to make further submissions to him about you know, whether this mine is going to be a breach of that duty of care. So that question hasn't yet been answered. They're still going to deliberate whether approving that mine would be a breach of this duty of care, but... It's not a done deal yet. So essentially they established like the legal precedent for this mine potentially being stopped, but they haven't had the actual ruling on whether the mine will be stopped or not. He said that there wasn't enough evidence to prove that the mine would cause more harm, so he's inviting them to give him more evidence. So does this mean we're done with climate change? Is everything solved? Look, I think that this is one of those really exciting stories that you know shows a lot of promise because now that the courts have established this legal duty of care that governments have to young people, it's possible that through legal action or even the possibility of legal action, the government might have to think more carefully about you know decisions it makes ar around the environment or, or approving certain projects that could make climate change worse. Yes. But how big an impact that's going to have on the government's actions and uh, whether or not we keep contributing to climate change, I don't know. It's it's definitely, as usual, a story to watch. Uh, a story to watch, but also like we'll figure out uh, the impacts of it in like a decade. <laughs> yes, well, then we'll really see them. <laughs> Wait a second. So you've explained all of this to me and you haven't even mentioned the nun. Oh, who my gosh, the, the nun? nun. The nun. Okay, yes. So <laughs> it was eight kids who brought this legal action plus a nun. Her name is Sister Bridget Arthur. She's 86 years old. Uh, she's a former teacher and she volunteered to be what's called the litigation guardian for these kids because, because they were all under the age of 18. They had to have like a person over the age of 18 as their litigation guardian to speak on their behalf. You're not allowed to drive or sue the government. <laughs> yeah. These are the things that add this to your list of things you can do over the age of 18. You can you can uh, drink, you can get your peas and you can go to a Club X and sue the government. <laughs> the big four. Okay, so for our second story this week, New South Wales opposition leader Jodie McKay got dumped from her position on Friday. Yeah, that's right, baby. We're doing state. 
politics, but don't worry, it's actually really interesting, even if you're not from New South Wales. And it's important on like a national political party level. Yeah, it has wide-ranging implications. (laughs) Um, First things first, Matilda. What is the leader of the opposition? Yeah, so it's basically the head of the second most powerful political party. Uh, and basically all the time that's either the Liberals or Labor, uh, except for WA where the Liberals lost so badly that the opposition is now Nationals. It's an embarrassment. We can't get into it. <laughs> um, okay, perfect. So Jodie McKay, leader of the opposition. She was well, the leader of... not anymore. No, she was the leader of the New South Wales Labor Party, but... She's gone as of Friday. So, Matilda, why why did they kick her out of the role? Okay, so I think it's worth just pointing out for people who maybe come to Ozpol with more of like an American perspective because I feel like that's how a lot of us sort of understand politics. In Australian politics, it's very different to how they do it in the US where you vote directly for the leader. So, like, Joe Biden, people were literally voting for him to be the Democratic candidate and then people voted directly for him to be the president. In Australia, the political parties decide more internally who the leader is going to be and that's the person that goes up for election and you vote in the party rather than the person. Okay, yep, so we're laying the groundwork for that. Um, Put that to one side. Let's talk about what happened right here, right now. So in New South Wales, something very important was sort of happening in the last couple of weeks and that was the Upper Hunter by-election. Justine, walk me through what a by-election is for those who haven't maybe listened to our first episode. (laughs) Yes, so a by-election is a mini election that's held for one, maybe two seats in between the main elections. So you have your state government election, all the seats are up for vote, everyone goes and votes for who they want depending on what area they're in. A by-election is usually because one person has either stepped down or been removed from their seat. And so there has to be a mini election held to decide who's going to be the candidate for that seat now that the previous person is gone. And that's what was happening in the Upper Hunter Valley seat. Yeah, if you're an elected official and you get booted or you resign, your party can't just replace you with someone else. They need to go back to the people. So to be clear, in a by-election, like only the people in the Upper Hunter Valley got to vote on who their new MP was going to be. So this was occurring in New South Wales and it was really important because it decided whether the, you know, the Liberal National Coalition government was going to sort of maintain like a majority of votes or if they were going to go into minority government, which is vastly harder to, to govern when you have to sort of court vote from other parties to get anything passed. Yeah, and that was because the New South Wales Liberal National Coalition government in power, they only had like a two-seat majority and then a whole lot of stuff happened and they lost one of those and they lost another one. So they were hanging on by a thread. So Labor really wanted to win this. Yeah, and also generally when there is a by-election, there's sort of a heavy swing against the incumbent party. So that means like whatever party was in that seat beforehand, they usually like – change parties or they get voted out and like the voters sort of vote against them. So there was this sort of feeling like Upper Hunter, like, yeah, it's been a really safe national seat for, what, 90 years, but it's getting more marginal. We should have this sort of swing against the incumbent party. Maybe we can knock the nationals out. Uh, So then the election came and what happened? Labor didn't win. Nope. They didn't at all. In fact, they did worse. They did worse than expected. Yeah. In fact, they actually lost some ground from the last election and they were upset. And often what happens when a party has like a big loss is that the current leader of the party gets booted out or gets stepped down or gets voted out, however the process is, and someone else sort of steps up to the plate. And that's what's happened. But what's interesting in this case is that this wasn't, that big an election. Yeah, like when I'm saying that the party leaders stepped down, we're usually talking about, you know, like the last federal election where Labor was meant to win and they absolutely lost. So then Bill Shorten stepped down and Anthony Albanese stepped up. A by-election is pretty small to kick a leader out over. So with all that in mind, Matilda, why did they replace Jodie McKay? Yeah, so they actually technically haven't replaced her yet at at the time of recording this podcast at least. But there's been a real sense that Jodie McKay has been 
mm, dropping the ball during the pandemic. Like, I think we've mentioned a few times that the pandemic has been extraordinarily good for, like, incumbent governments. Governments who are people who are already in power. Yeah, like in WA, everyone loves Daddy McGowan, the head of Labor there. In Tasmania, they just had a state election too, and Liberals got back in because they were in power before. There's overall a sense that, like, incumbents do really well in pandemic elections because Australia's kind of done really well throughout the pandemic. It doesn't matter that that there are other circumstances as to why we've done well in this pandemic. The fact that these are the people who are in power when things have gone okay, particularly compared to the rest of the world, means that people are more likely to stick with the status quo uh, like, sorry, that was a terrible high school musical reference. <laughs> oh, my God. I loved it. <laughs> but can I can I just say what you're saying is that is very true and then it's kind of supercharged a little bit in New South Wales. Like, people love Gladys Berejiklian because she's actually had a very successful campaign of containing the virus. Like, New South Wales hasn't gone for the same sort of hard lockdowns. They've taken such a kind of more relaxed approach and somehow, somehow it's, like, really worked out for them. Yeah, I, compared to Victoria, who has taken a more hardline <laughs> approach and, haha, we are in lockdown. Yeah. So people really love Gladys Berejiklian to the point where um, not only is she the preferred premier, she is the preferred premier with Labor voters. <laughs> like, oh. s- yeah, yeah. Uh, even Labor wants her to be the leader and not Jodie McKay. But Matilda, why don't people like Jodie McKay? Is that just because Gladys Berejiklian is popular or are there specific things that she's done that have rubbed people the wrong way? Look, I think to a certain degree it is that Gladys Berejiklian's become so much of a force that there's kind of not a lot of oxygen for other people in the room. Like (laughs) Jodie McKay's name recognition isn't amazing Mm. in New South Wales, but there's also been some certain opportunities that she's missed that I think even sort of staunch Labor people are a bit kind of uncomfortable with. Okay, so you might have heard about this last year, but basically there was this extraordinary day in New South Wales news where the Premier Gladys Berejiklian was dragged up in front of this thing called ICAC, which is essentially like an organisation that investigates corruption in the New South Wales government. And it was revealed like during this hearing that she had had a close personal relationship with this very controversial now former MP for Wagga Wagga called Daryl Maguire. And like the hearing was to investigate corruption allegations against him and then all of a sudden we learn that wait a second the premier's been in a relationship with him and wait a second again the premier continued this relationship with him during like some of these questionable moments yeah there was there was questions about how much had she known about what he was doing when he was in government and she was his premier and had she acted on that appropriately And so there was this feeling that this was going to be a massive watershed moment. But almost immediately, the kind of narrative that took over was like, Gladys is allowed to have a private life. Like, she made a bad decision. She had a, like, shitty boyfriend. We can't blame her for that. What a relatable queen. (laughs) And there was, like, a lot of fear, I think, from both the media and then Labor as well to not go too hard on Berejiklian, lest it sort of be viewed as quite sexist. Oh, we have like this single powerful woman. She's not allowed to like have a relationship. She has to be held accountable for the dodgy behaviour of a man. (laughs) Yeah. We're not going to let a man take down our queen. But like looking back, I think a lot of people were like, wait a second, why didn't Labor go harder on this? Like there are some serious questions about what the premier of a whole state knew about alleged corruption that her partner was carrying out, how much did she know, how much did she purposely choose not to know, and how much was she sort of, like, willing to, like, let slip under the radar? But Labor didn't really go hard on that. And I think looking back, people see that very much as a missed opportunity. And a failing of the leader, Jodie McKay. A hundred percent. I think it is interesting, though, that this is – the first Labor leader, at least, you know, in in our memories, who's been kicked out over the performance at a by-election. And yes, there are all these kinds of background situations that maybe have made people concerned that Jodie McKay is not the most powerful Labor leader for New South Wales or doesn't have, like, the following to win the next election. But 
yeah, it, it does speak, I think, to a maybe a larger standard that we hold for women in politics compared to male leaders. Yeah, because the person that it's really looking like is going to replace her is this guy called Chris Mintz, like a man. So there's this question of like, okay, this is kind of a poison chalice. State opposition leader is like well known as like the worst possible fucking job in politics. And it's sort of <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like, okay, do we have like unbelievably high standards for women when they're in that role that we're not sort of casting onto men? Okay, Justine, we're on to the main topic. There's 6.7 million people in lockdown. There's going to be very severe economic consequences. A lot of uh, small businesses are actually going to suffer a a whole bunch. And also it's inconvenient for me. Who is to blame? (laughs) Let's talk about it. Lay the groundwork, Justine. What actually happened? Yes, so... Last week, the Victorian government announced that we are going into a week-long lockdown, but this story really starts a month ago. We had a returned overseas traveller who did two weeks hotel quarantine in Adelaide, tested negative the whole time, finished his isolation, came to Melbourne. Whoops! Turns out that that two-week quarantine period means nothing when you get COVID in hotel quarantine. So, (laughs) yes, so he tested positive for COVID after he had flown on a plane and, like, you know, been in the community for a little bit in Victoria. He went straight into isolation and contact traces were all over the case. They were trying to make sure that this hadn't spread any further. And it looked for a little while that he hadn't infected anyone and that we could have someone, you know, contract COVID and not spread it throughout the community and cause a statewide lockdown. Isn't that right, Matilda? Yeah, yeah. Finally, we like we were a bit chiller about it all. These things are going to happen, but as long as our contact tracing is good enough, nothing's going to slip through the cracks, you know? Nothing. Oh, what's that? Something slipped through the cracks? Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah, it turns out he had infected someone. We just didn't quite know. And that strain of infection was bubbling away under the surface unnoticed, uh, for like a couple of weeks. Then comes along Monday. Uh, suddenly someone goes and gets tested. Turns out they're positive. They uh, There's two cases that day, one of the people they're at home with. And suddenly people are a little worried. It builds the next day. There's more cases the next day as everyone sort of starts flooding out and getting tested. By Wednesday, there's 14 cases in the cluster. By Thursday, there's 26. And guess what? We're going into lockdown, baby. Uh, It was widespread. And just to kind of put into context why this you know, might have spread so quickly and just how serious the situation is. One of the people who got tested and it came back positive last week, they had been out in the community and potentially infectious for 12 days before they got tested. And around 14,000 Victorians have been asked to isolate a lot of them for the next two weeks. So that that little like, you know, who's in your bubble, like who could you have potentially infected? Yeah, that has that has really ballooned out. Yeah, definitely. So no one was that surprised when we went into lockdown. Maybe what was more surprising is that it was for seven days rather than like three or five like we've seen before. And also it was for all of Victoria, not just Melbourne. But it had gotten out of just the realms of the city. And one question that we're all asking is, well, why has this happened? Now, politicians have been uh, quick to point out the fact that COVID is pretty infectious and they've been talking up about how this particular uh, strain of the virus that's making its way around Victoria is especially infectious. But Is that the full story, Matilda? Well, it's hard to say. So the moment that this all started happening, uh, everyone, including the acting premier, actually, started pointing the finger. And it's our job. We've taken it upon ourselves to become the arbitration, the court of public opinion, and we're going to settle once and for all who's to blame. Yeah, we're judge and jury. Would you like to know our three candidates, Justine? Oh, please, Matilda, reveal them to me. Behind door one, we have the federal government's vaccine rollout or the slowness thereof. Ooh, a strong contender. Who's behind door number two? Opening up door two? Oh, it's the federal government's reluctance to move away from the hotel quarantine system towards more alternative open-air facilities. Ooh, another strong contender. And door number three? What's that? Door number three, a bit of a curveball. Is it the state government's contact tracing system? Victoria's (gasps) fault again. Uh, (laughs) 
a wild card. I love it. Okay. Can I throw an even wilder card at you? Yeah, sure. Hit hit us. Hit I, us. We haven't planned for this. I'm going to put in a smaller fourth door. Okay. It's just like it's like half the size of the other doors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to crawl through it. But yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. what is it? What's on it? The weather. <laughs> we'll get to it. Okay. We'll get we'll to it. Mother nature. <laughs> God, question mark. <laughs> Yes, welcome to The Blame Game, a trademarked original game started by Old Boys Club. <laughs> we'll open door one after this ad break. I'm just joking, we don't have an ad. Udi, please sponsor us. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's move to contestant number one. So the federal vaccine rollout, Matilda, who has been blaming that? Um, Look, everyone, ah. uh, <laughs> this is definitely the strongest contender. There's a couple of reasons why that might be some more legitimate than others. But before we get into that, let's um, let's lay down the groundwork of what's going on with this rollout. Yep. Justine, do you remember how Australia's vaccine rollouts are fucking disaster? It happened seven episodes ago. Yes, that was our first episode. It also happened last episode, if you remember. Yes, yes, <laughs> We it were did. talking about this last week too. Yeah, look, um, the vaccine rollout, is it doing better than it was? Yes. Is it doing as well as we thought it was uh, should have been by now? No. When the first Pfizer doses arrived, like we've said it before, we've said it again, they said that by the end of March, there would be 4 million people vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. We are only just approaching that target like now. What We're month at, is like, it? Oh, it's nearly it's the, June. Yeah. I mean, like, I don't know what, what we'll be at by the time people are listening, but when we recorded this, I think we were at about the 3.9 areas, maybe a little further. So we really are like catching up. Yeah. We've been behind the eight ball for a while. And so you might be thinking like, oh, okay, that's like 4 million people. There's only, what, 25 million people in Australia. Like that's not terrible. Yeah, um, not it's terrible. 2% of the population have had both vaccinations. 2% of the oh. population is fully vaccinated at this point. So I, explain this to me because we have an outbreak of COVID in Victoria. How would a better vaccine rollout by the federal government have prevented us going into lockdown like ex explain the connection yeah so it is a bit confusing because there's a couple of factors with vaccines about how it affects covid which is mm. like um does it protect you from getting covid does it protect you from spreading covid does it protect you from falling seriously ill with covid are yeah. the main things yeah so vaccines are really far from being 100 percent effective in stopping you from getting covid so there's a lot of people saying wait a second why in this sort of lockdown outbreak are we focusing so much on like the federal government vaccine situation because the vaccine wouldn't have stopped an outbreak but what it would potentially have the ability to stop is how serious an outbreak is. So the AstraZeneca vaccine and Pfizer are both really bloody good at stopping you from going to hospital if you get COVID. They're mm. very good at turning COVID from a life-threatening disease to like a common cold. Yeah. And so what I'm hearing is that what these vaccines are really effective in doing is reducing the chance that hospital systems are going to become flooded with people if there is a COVID outbreak. Is that right? Yeah. So, like, imagine for a second if Australia had been on the absolute front line of vaccinations and, you know, we had all the Moderna, all the Pfizer in the world, it's not unreasonable to think, looking at other sort of, like, you know, prosperous Western nations, that we could potentially have, like, everyone over 60 or everyone over 70 vaccinated by now. So when we're making the decision to go into lockdown, which essentially becomes a decision weighing up people's livelihoods and people's lives, that calculation, like that balance is going to have dramatically shifted. And that's why the Victorian acting premier, James Molino, you know, used the opportunity on Thursday after he announced the lockdown to uh, take a bit of a swipe at the federal government oh, and just a point the one. finger. At, yeah, just a cheeky little swipe. Point the finger at them for uh, the cause of this lockdown because no one really likes a lockdown. So it's nice to be able to shift the blame to someone else, and in this case, the federal government. Um, he said, "Quote: If we had the Commonwealth's vaccine program effectively rolled out, we may well not be here today talking about these circuit breaker restrictions that we must impose to keep." 
keep our community safe. That is establishing the narrative of who is to blame for this lockdown. Okay, so that's contestant number one. The state Victorian government is blaming the federal government for failing to roll the vaccine out fast enough because if they'd done that, well, we wouldn't be forced into lockdowns every time there's an outbreak. We wouldn't have the risk of overrunning our medical systems and having a lot of people get very, very sick. But moving on, contestant number two is it's it's also aimed at the federal government, but it's also maybe a state problem, and that is the failures of hotel quarantine to keep this virus from spreading from person to person. So, Matilda, has hotel quarantine been like a totally perfect, flawless system of uh, vetting and containing this virus as it enters our country and stopping it from spreading to the population? Um. No, it hasn't been a perfect system. (laughs) And the controversy around hotel quarantine uh, has a lot to do with the actual way that the coronavirus particles spread. Okay, like how COVID is spread. Yeah, how it's transmitted. And we won't get too deep into epidemiology here because we're we're here for blaming politicians and not germs. (laughs) We're not here here to tell you how science works, just how politicians act. Go listen to Coronacast if you want epidemiology. (laughs) Don't. Don't listen to another podcast, not ever, not even (laughs) Okay, so hotel quarantine is a good system if COVID only spread through droplets, which means like actually through like the spit that you spray out, which like drops to the ground pretty quickly and like won't uh, hang around in the air for a while Ah. and won't travel by itself. Okay, I'm getting the sense that it does travel through the air then. (laughs) Yes, so there's growing evidence that rather than being purely droplet spread, there is also an element of aerosol spread, which basically like as well as droplets of spit when you speak or you breathe, there's also kind of like a much finer mist. So, So COVID, what you're telling me is that COVID can spread through your breath? Yeah, essentially. And yeah, the mist is your breath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That means that, like, if it's in the air, when you open like a door to like a shared corridor, that that mist can get out. That mist can hang in the air for extended periods of time, and it can travel like meters, like potentially into someone else's hotel room. Uh, so, like. Hotels are just normal buildings, right? Like, we didn't build these as quarantine facilities. Like, a door is very good at stopping a bit of spit. It's not built, this whole system is not built to stop, like, air in general and have no air spread. <laughs> it's not the door's fault is what we're establishing here. They did. Well, they weren't yeah. meant to stop them. They weren't meant to stop breath. <laughs> and this has led to a number of outbreaks in, like, most states or yeah. most, and most territories, right? Like, pretty much all of the recent lockdowns we've had have started with hotel quarantine spread? Yeah, so this is the 17th hotel quarantine COVID outbreak in the last six months in Australia. Okay, so we've established that hotels, like, it really feels like, you know, someone's just put a little bit too much pressure on them and they actually, like, didn't really sign up to this and it's not honestly, like, their fault if it's, like, not really working out and that... (laughs) Okay, so hotel quarantine, you know, uh, hasn't got the best track record. It maybe doesn't work as well as we thought it should. What does work? Isolated open-air cabins in a purpose-built quarantine facility. Wow. So the Victorian government has been up in arms and begging the federal government to step up and fix the state's hotel quarantine systems. Now, Matilda, why is that? Who actually runs hotel quarantine? Yeah, that's a great question and something that's been heavily debated <laughs> by a lot of politicians. Excellent. Okay, so <laughs> the way the like breakdown of powers works, you know, between the state and the federal government, we are a federation mm-hmm. after all, is that mm-hmm. the Commonwealth, the federal government is meant to be in charge of quarantine because, like, quarantine is meant to be, you know, things like international trade coming in and out and like stuff yeah. to do with borders. Like that is the Commonwealth. Yeah. Like that's that's what the Commonwealth deals with. That make that makes sense. Yeah, and usually quarantine is about like, oh, all these bananas have come over, and we want to make sure <laughs> there's no diseases that would mess with our banana crops. Or like, oh, it's ex- it's exactly the same situation except <laughs> it's people instead of bananas. Yeah, but same same thoughts go into it. And um, sometimes you know like a rich person's dog when they're coming back from America. Those are the quarantine areas, not, (laughs) yeah, not full populations. 
So when COVID started, I think you'll remember, we were quick to be like, anyone coming in from overseas, you have to isolate for two weeks. But then case numbers were still rising. So we're like, actually, anyone from overseas, not only do you have to isolate for two weeks, but you have to isolate for two weeks in a hotel. And that was essentially just so the government could keep track of where you were. And that all had to happen really quickly. Like, I feel like we forget about just how panicked the first couple of weeks of the pandemic were. Mm. And in that time, it was decided, okay, we need to get this done quickly. Each individual state is going to sort this out and they're going to pay for it themselves and they're going to run it. Like the states agreed to be like, okay, this is a federal job, but we'll step up and do it. And I think at that point, everyone was sort of thinking that this is going to last for you know, six months, like maybe as a stretch. But now we're talking about this for like at least another year. Remember, we're talking about borders not even starting to open until mid-2022. And not only has hotel quarantine proven to be kind of dangerous for states because it can cause these like hugely economically impactful lockdowns when there's breaches, but also expensive like no the states weren't budgeting for running this for like two years yeah at and least so, two years if not many oh, more yeah so every time there's an outbreak now there's an intensified call from some states for the federal government to take back their responsibility and to deal with quarantine and so that was very much the case in victoria to the point where the state government actually put a proposal to the federal government saying here is a plan for a quarantine facility you need to build it justine tell me about this proposal so the victorian government came out with a vague idea for this after the last lockdown in February. And a couple of weeks ago, they came out with a solid proposal. This was before the federal budget. And they asked the federal government to, you know, put some money towards this quarantine facility in Victoria as part of that federal budget. Yeah, they're still technically considering it, but yeah, they're going to support it. So basically, I mean, <laughs> they're going to support it. I mean, it would be tough for them not to at this point. So to be clear, like that's how the federal government is acting. But the conversation about how is hotel quarantine to blame is essentially like, um, the federal government should have been doing this months ago. They shouldn't have had to be strong armed into it. They should have been since you know the first. Outbreak in hotel quarantine. No, the the first whisper of aerosol spread even. They should have been building one of these facilities in absolutely every state Mm. and then we wouldn't have to be dealing with it. As it is, though, even if this was built in Victoria, we would still also be quarantining people in hotels as well. Like, all of these proposals are based around the fact that hotel quarantine would, like, continue too. So I think there has also been a big conversation of, like, okay, well, like, even if this had been approved, like hotel quarantine would still be going on. And like, would this have really stopped this specific outbreak? I think there's been lots of seeds yeah. of doubt when it came to that. But on a like broader scale, if the federal government had been starting acting on this six months, nine months, a year ago, would we be in this position? Now, Matilda, turning to door number three, it was shifting blame. No longer the federal government is in the spotlight. We're, we're turning all fingers to the Victorian government and in particular their failure to contact Trace properly. Yeah, time to change it round. <laughs> okay, so back on May 11, the state government published six exposure sites linked back to that first guy, you know, the guy from Adelaide who caught the virus in quarantine that he or his close contacts had visited. And one of these exposure sites was Woolworths at Epping. It's called Epping Woolworths um, for those who might not, you know, be from Melbourne or Victoria. But they discovered about a week ago that they'd written the wrong place. The actual exposure site was Epping North Woolworths, which was over four kilometers away. And it took these contact tracers almost two weeks to realize the mistake. So the Victorian contact tracing team was massively criticized by the Australian Medical Association for this this bungle. Now, just to be clear, according to experts, we don't think that any of the current outbreak we're experiencing stems from this mistake. Like none of these cases came from Epping North Woolworths. But people have criticized that this is emblematic of a larger failing of contract tracers. Like, you know, they, they miss this exposure site. They clearly miss the fact that this guy who came from Adelaide spread the virus to other people at all for quite a while. And that it's these instances that have led the virus to kind of spread uh unknown throughout Victoria for the last few weeks and has has brought us up to this this outbreak. And this is also coming off the back of this second wave we had where contact tracing 
did fall down to a certain degree. Like when we're talking about 700 cases a day, it was overwhelmed. It couldn't keep up. As well as the fact that, you know, we mentioned New South Wales earlier, they seem to have this contact tracing system that can deal with outbreaks but not lock down and somehow have been able to contain it. So, you know, you're looking up up north of the border and you're like, why isn't our system like that? Yeah, absolutely. And another problem that we should mention that's making contact tracing harder is the fact that some businesses haven't been using COVID-safe QR code check-ins or following the density limits. Yeah, and that would be something that's kind of the state government's job to crack down on. Like, it's kind of the Victorian government's job to force businesses to force people. Okay, so what has the state government's response to this criticism been? Uh, They are going hard and saying absolutely no. (laughs) So the Chief Health Officer, Brett Sutton, you may remember him from everyone getting weird and horny about him during the second <laughs> lockdown and making like doona covers with his face what? on it. Uh, the silver fox, as people knew him. I had to Google this man. I don't think I've seen, I, I haven't been, I haven't pictured any silver foxes. Oh, you know, you, you'll you know him. Google him and give me your Hold reaction. Hold on, I'm going to Google him right now. I mean, I'm really not for sexualizing any members of um, politics, but. Oh, Fuck. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like a decent looking politician. Most politicians look like an egg. He looks... I mean, technically he's not even a politician. He's a health professional. Is he Olympian? Isn't he like a former Olympian turned health professional? I do not think so. (gasps) Is he? No, no, he's not. He's a former... uh, He's a a triathlon coach. That in my mind makes him an Olympian. No, triathlon I think is... That makes me like him less. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. Well... Okay, continue. Okay. Anyway. Yes, what did, what did the hot triathlon say? Yes, so this man came out pretty hard against anyone who was suggesting this might be contact tracer's fault. He made this tweet thread. I'm going to read you a little bit of it. I'm excited. I think I've been pretty calm over the last 16 months and I hope I've always been respectful, but I will get fired up when contact tracers are attacked. They do extraordinary work and they do it brilliantly. 10,000 contacts found. The false narrative hurts real people mentally. Ooh, daddy's angry. (laughs) Now is not the time to find an imaginary scapegoat. It's the time to support Victorians going through another really tough time. We know what to do now of like no other. You've got to love Victorians for how we support each other. End. He writes end at the end of that tweet. <laughs> oh my gosh. That has the same energy of like of like someone who writes um okay with a full stop in a text to you. Oh. And that's like as firm as we've seen him, really. <laughs> Victorian government's not taken this contact tracing slander lying down, but also, you know, I, I it's not totally stopped the speculation. That's door three. That's all the contestants. Wait, Matilda, you said that there was a door four. I want to know who's behind the sneaky half door four. Behind door four is Mother Nature. It's the weather. Um, <laughs> Mel- Melbourne's colder than other cities. COVID, we know, like, has a seasonal element. Uh, if it's colder, it probably spreads more easily. Maybe. It's hard to tell. There's not that much data. The disease hasn't been around for that long. My mum always told me that the cold spreads cold. So yeah. that, that logic makes the most sense to me. Well, yeah. So, like, if we're talking about, like, wh- why does Victoria always have the bad luck? We've also had our, like, significant outbreaks, like, during cold times. Like, Queensland, you know, when they had their snap lockdown and it didn't really spread and other states like that, they were doing that during warmer months. Like, it was during summer or earlier this year, we're now dealing with this in winter. So there's an element of like, is Melbourne just unlucky because it's also colder than other cities? Uh, you could also argue that Tasmania is even colder, but we'll forget about that for the moment. Uh, that's still four. We'll ignore that little biscuit. We'll just push that to one side and, and call yeah. that an outlier. Also, like, it's COVID. It's really infectious there are going to be outbreaks. Like, we're not in a pandemic for no reason. You know, the whole world hasn't ground to a halt for no reason. Like, there is an element of, I think, some people saying, like, this is inevitable. Well, that's it. That's all four contestants. But wait a second, Matilda. We said that we were going to be the judge and the jury. Yeah, we did say we were going to decide once and for all who was to blame for this. Yeah. Oh, now that I think about it, it sort of seems like it's an unbelievably complicated issue that really doesn't just apply to Victoria. It sort of applies to, you know, Australia as a whole. And actually, maybe all of this back and forth, who's to blame, has a lot more to do with kind of party politics than it does to do with actually creating a constructive solution to outbreaks in the pandemic. Could that be, Justine? Look, Matilda, I think you're onto something there. I, I, if, it, if it isn't already clear, 
a lot of the criticism that's being hurled at the federal government is being hurled at them by uh, Labor state governments like Victoria and criticism that might be being thrown at the Victorian government, you know, some of that is probably politically motivated by people that want to get the Victorian government out in the next state election. Like, we need to remember that politicians are always looking for opportunities to basically shit on each other's parties for their own political gain. And while some of this criticism is very valid, a lot of what's being said and who it's being said by is because of which party people belong to or which party they want to see elected in the next elections. So keep that in mind too. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the point, right? Like there's probably a lot of different things that that are to blame here. And once again, as I said in the kind of very first segment, a lot of that isn't going to be decided by cold hard facts. It's going to be decided by emotion and it's going to be decided of like which narrative suits you best personally and which feels best to you emotionally. And like ultimately, you know, that that's that's politics. That's how it works. Unless it's about climate change, then it's about who's paying you the most money. (laughs) ending the episode with some hard shots justine that's just about all we have time for this week thank goodness oh my god and that's not even like 10 percent of the stories that happened this week yeah there's a lot of news out there this week and if you want to stay on top of that news you should follow us on instagram where we post regular explainers videos and like you know breaking down what's happening in australian politics Speaking of Instagram, who shouted us out this week? Yes, we need to say some thank yous. So thank you so much to Jamila Rizvi, Stephanie, Kara, Elizabeth, Breedence, Tegan Shian, Rihanna, Chloe, Rochelle, Jessica, Freya, Lauren, Helen, Bridie, Laura, Taylor, Jessica, another Jessica, Again. Emily, Molly, the Deacon Women's Group, Aaron, Frankie's Cloth Co., Wasteland Ooh. Review, Libby, Ooh. H-Squad Ooh. Swinburne, Shameless Podcast, we love you, and Chelsea. And if you want to be on this list next week, just take a screenshot of listening to us right this very second. Pop it on your Instagram story, tag us at Old Boys Club Pod. And remember, uh, you can leave us a voice message question if you want your question answered in the next podcast as well. I want voice messages. (laughs) We do. And before we go, we really want to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on the land of the Bunurong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation. And we pay our respects to elders past and present. This land was stolen and never ceded. We also want to acknowledge the country that you're joining us from and pay our respects to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who are listening today. Our theme music is by the incredible Alexis Weaver. Our show is produced by the incredibly sexy Anthony Furchie. And Alex Ty, I didn't want to call uh, your boyfriend sexy, but <laughs> he's pretty good too. Mixing and editing by my very sexy boyfriend, Alex Ty. I'm Justine Landis-Hanley. I'm Matilda Bosley. And, and this, this is Old Boys, Boys Club. Club. Was, did that sound weird? We recorded remotely. We can't really hear each other. There's a bit of a lag. <laughs> stand-up comedians stay overnight in a city where they didn't live for a show, but I wasn't made for protecting the world against COVID. <laughs> um. <laughs>